Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is your Sunday Reset. When Reset went on the air last October, we knew we wanted to take a deep dive into disparities in the Chicago area. These disparities affect how and where people live, their education, their mental health services, and more. We wanted to understand where these disparities come from and talk with people working to close those gaps, which is why we call this series Closing the Gap. Today and for the next several Sundays, we'll look at the stark life expectancy gap between some of Chicago's richest and poorest residents. Two weeks ago, we spoke to Dr. David Ansel, author of the book, The Death Gap, How Inequality Kills. What people don't realize is that diseases are not just a matter of your belief, behaviors, and biology, but place where you live and the conditions you live under, work under, play in can have a profound impact on life itself. In part two of the series, we step back and look at how we got here. What did Inglewood look like before the decay of the 80s and 90s? What does this disparity look like on the ground? Rodney Johnson is a public health researcher and president of the group One Health Inglewood. He's lived in the neighborhood since the 1960s and described what Inglewood was like at the time. Well, in the 1960s, Inglewood had a higher population. There was a demographic shift going on. But during the 1960s, there were over 70,000 people that actually lived in Inglewood at the time. And the 63rd Street Shopping Mall was a huge financial anchor for the community. Uh, The schools were at a higher capacity than they do today. And the neighborhoods were somewhat safer because it was more of a community feel in the neighborhood. So what changed? Well, the number one change, if you want to look at between 1970 and now, is housing. It happened over a gradual period of time. It just didn't happen overnight. Neighborhood now that went from over in the high 70,000s to now it's only 26,000 people that actually live in the community. What about the accessibility of jobs in the area? How did that change? Well, during the 1970s, there were a lot of jobs that were in the city, and stockyards started the actual change because they closed, and there was a lot of jobs for people. They didn't even need a high school education to get a job. And then you had other factories and things that moved out to the suburbs, and that it was a gradual shift in employment from the city to the suburbs during the 1970s, and there was nothing to fill that void. So a breakdown in infrastructure, um, issues with housing, job loss. How did those changes impact the individual health of residents? Well, it started from a behavior point of view, you know, because when you look at the life expectancy from 1970 to 2002, mortality rates decreased 32 percent over that period of time. Most people actually went to the emergency room or to the Cook County to actually get their health care. And then you combine that with actually the trauma that people were experiencing is sort of like what they call an embodiment, where it continues over a period of time, and it actually adds to high levels of stress. One example that I really saw when I was looking at the data from both communities was the level of childhood obesity in Streeterville. I use Chicago Health Atlas data. And you look at childhood obesity, it's identical. It was 21% in Inglewood and 20% in Streeterville or the near north. But by the time it got to adults, they had decreased to 17% in Streeterville and 34% in Inglewood. So those things are associated with behavior that have developed over a period of time. Uh, one thing that's contributed to the mortality and actually morbidity of the female population is that when you look at the incidence of breast cancer, you have a higher rate of breast cancer incidence in Streeterville 
But what that means is that people are getting tested early, whereas in the African-American community, it's almost 75% of the diagnosis or incidence of breast cancer is in the late stage. So you talk about a challenge around access to care. What are the barriers that exist around access? Before the Affordable Care Act, it was really affordability. And because when you look at the jobs that left that community during the 70s and 80s, those jobs actually transitioned to better health care plans for the people that actually worked there. So those stockyard jobs that left came with health insurance, health care that people could access. But when those jobs left, there wasn't so much there to fill the gap. Correct. Because during the 1970s, there was the life expectancy between black and white was probably as close as there ever was in history. Well, as a public health researcher, you focus, again, on health equity and the social determinants of health. But specifically, you're focusing your research on the south side of the city. Why was it important to focus on that area? Well, it's two reasons why. One reason why I grew up there, and I saw the area in the 1970s, and I seen how it was. It was a community that was vibrant at the time. You know, there were a lot of things going on that really were identical to any other community in place in Chicago. And one of the drivers has been how do you really connect people to that past? Because I think it's very important to people understand that how we got there, there are solutions to the issues. Because there is a lot more power in the community than the community realizes. And so being able to mobilize that from an economic point of view and actually a civic point of view is very important to me. Earlier this summer, you actually went community to community to ask people why they weren't using services that were available to them. What did you find out? Well, just two things that were major. One, that most people had access, had health care insurance, which was a good positive. If you want to actually tie it to life expectancy, there were issues concerning prevention. And so there's an educational opportunity. I look at things as opportunities more so than issues because I think that opportunities create action, and action is very important. And then another thing is that it's still a time thing with people as far as access. It's not that they don't want to get treatment, but with the type of jobs that you have, they're not as flexible as the nine to five jobs, or you don't have an ability to take off work when you want to. And so it's a time thing. When you think about the history of Inglewood and some of the breakdowns you described earlier in our conversation, what do you see as being the key places where, say, lawmakers could intervene or community organizations could intervene to help close this life expectancy gap we're seeing? One of the most important things is to not have a one-size-fits-all approach. I think it's important to recognize that each age group has its own different issues. And so you have to really look at it and have different interventions for different levels. That's public health researcher Rodney Johnson, who focuses on social determinants of health on the South Side. Rodney, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you. I want to bring another voice into this conversation. Dr. Sophia Adawi is the medical director with the Inner City Muslim Action Network's Health Clinic, which serves residents from Southside neighborhoods, including Inglewood, South Shore, and Gage Park. The group, Iman, says the health clinic started as a grassroots effort in response to the lack of access to health care on the South Side. Dr. Adawi, welcome to Reset. Thank you so much for having me. So just tell us first how Iman's health center first came about. So there was just a strong need expressed by members in the community. This was back in the late 90s, 2000-ish time. 
you know, before the Affordable Care Act, there were a much higher percentage of people who were uninsured, and healthcare was a very big need in the community. And so Iman's Health Center started as a volunteer-run thing that was done twice a month in a rented doctor's office, and they were just doing health screenings at the time. And the need proved itself so quickly and so dramatically that within just a number of years, it went from just a couple of days a week to a five-day-a-week operation with a handful of volunteer physicians. Uh, In 2012, we added mental health services. And in 2016, we added dental services. It just keeps growing. But all of it has come about as an express need directly from the people within our immediate community. How important is it to have access to a clinic like this that's actually in your neighborhood, a place where you maybe could walk or at least catch a bus to? Absolutely. We have the community members who walk right up the street, who've been in this neighborhood for years and years, grew up there. But believe it or not, we have patients that come from over 100 different zip codes to our health center. And we really feel that it's a reflection of the type of care that we provide and the approach that we take to health, wellness, and healing. What are some of the main health issues the clinic sees in residents who who come in? So we see a lot of chronic disease. Um, There's no getting around that. We know that um, people who come from historically disenfranchised communities do have higher rates and higher morbidity from the same conditions as diabetes, hypertension, high cholesterol. We see a lot of depression, anxiety. But then we also see sort of your everyday stuff, you know, kids who come in for school physicals or women who want a pregnancy test or STD screenings. I think what's unique to the communities that we serve is that there is a lot of chronic disease. And because of all the barriers that they face, oftentimes they have a harder time getting a grip on those conditions and getting the care that they need for them. Our previous guest talked about the sort of divide in being treated for illnesses and accessing preventative care. And is the clinic one way you can encourage people to take preventative measures when it comes to their health? I would argue good primary care is preventative care. You know, that's a passion of most primary care providers. Uh, You always want to try to catch something either completely before it started or when it's in the early stages and easier to treat. I think, unfortunately, people who come from the communities that are not getting the resources and the care that they need oftentimes don't have that luxury. They often don't get to a doctor until it's bad enough that they have to stop what they're doing. You know, so many of my patients work two and three jobs, sometimes can't afford bus fare, They have child care issues. They can't get to the doctor because they don't have anyone to watch their children. I've had patients that I've tried to send to the emergency room who say, I can't go. No, there's no one to pick up my kids. So, yes, preventative care is the ultimate target. But right now we're at a point where we're, we're even just trying to get people stabilized. So, Dr. Ottawee, this started off as a free clinic. Yes. But you've gone through some transitions since then. Tell us about that. So, yes, several years ago, we switched to fee-for-service. There was some debate about whether to remain a free clinic or to go in that direction. But there's actually a movement with community health centers with the attempt to approach delivery of health care directly from within the communities that are affected the most. And that movement actually started from the organizing movement. Um, People like Dolores Huerta and others talk about how community health centers should have organizers within their clinics. So it just made a lot of sense for Iman as an organization to move in that direction and to pursue that federal 
status and that federal designation. And so several years ago, we embarked on that process formally. It had been going on for much longer than that. In 2018, the health center became a federally qualified health center lookalike. And then just last month, we were the only health center in all of Illinois to be awarded the full federally qualified health center status. And what does that mean for your ability to serve patients? It's a game changer. One, it gives us access to resources that we didn't previously have in the form of grants from the federal government. Two, it has us now at the table with the big players when it comes to community health. And people have been doing this much longer than we have. (laughs) Um, So just having the access to those other people who can help us avoid some of the pitfalls as we grow and expand this holistic model. There's a lot of work that we do that addresses the social determinants of health and not in silos, all within that same picture of health, wellness, and healing. We recognize that you can't just treat someone clinically and expect them to get better. With that federal designation, how does that change the way people are able to access your service? Up until receiving this designation and the federal dollars and resources that come with it, we're reliant on grants, we're reliant on donors. You know, there's a small amount of revenue that we generate, but 51% of our patients are uninsured still, even with the Affordable Care Act. Um, So yes, we see a lot of Medicaid patients, some Medicare patients, but at the end of the day, you have to keep the lights on. And so this is really going to be a way that we can be sustainable and allow that same quality of care for everyone, regardless of their ability to pay. When you think about the health clinic you run, and you think about other healthcare resources available for local residents, we know that some go unused. What, in your estimation, are the barriers for people who need this kind of care but aren't accessing it? I think one of the barriers is culturally competent care. And that's a really broad term that I think people throw around often. And it's more than speaking different languages, which almost everyone on our staff is bilingual or trilingual, and that's by design. Uh, We serve patients who are Arabic-speaking, Spanish-speaking, and and obviously English-speaking as well. Understanding people's cultural references and things like that is still sort of a surface-level thing. We really pride ourselves on when you walk through our doors, you feel like you're walking into someone's living room. You're welcomed in a way that doesn't feel sterile and clinical. And I think that's important, particularly because the people that we're talking about have a deep-rooted distrust of the medical community for some very valid reasons. A few months ago, there was a gentleman who biked all the way from Oak Park to our clinic. And, you know, we asked him, what had you ride your bike past at least a dozen other health centers to come to ours? And he said, it's the care that I get here. It's the way that I'm treated when I walk in these doors. It's I know I'm going to get the quality care and that I'm going to be treated as more than just a number coming through these doors. It's hard to disentangle poverty and violence and lack of access to good food and toxic stress in general and the other host of social determinants that we talk about that people are facing. It's hard to disentangle that from their experience in healthcare settings. And at least in our health center, we're trying to do what we can to address that. What do you think could happen at a policy level? to close this gap? Because you have individual clinics doing this work in communities, you have community organizations. 
But from a policy perspective, what needs to shift? I think policymakers need to pay more attention to the work that community health centers are doing and maybe develop a deeper appreciation for the unique role that we can play in addressing these issues, directing more resources towards us. And I think there needs to be a shift in the way that we think about patients. Um, Again, one of the things that we pride ourselves on is that our patients are not just patients, they're community leaders. We really look to them as being a source and a part of solving the problems that we're encountering. That's Dr. Sophia Adawi, Medical Director for the Aman Health Clinic. Dr. Adawi, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you so much for having me. And that's your Sunday Reset. Join us next Sunday for part three of our Closing the Gap series, where we continue our look at the life expectancy gap between the richest and poorest residents of Chicago. Until then, I'm Jen White. Have a great rest of your weekend, and let's talk again soon.